0: Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayle with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And it's Saturday at 9, so that means we're here to talk with you about the markets and the economy and hopefully give you some good insights so that you can, well, hopefully understand some of what's going on out there and to make some good investment decisions as a result. Now, yesterday, well, the whole week uh, was pretty much unchanged from the week before, even though we had a lot of upping and downing in the interim. Uh, The Dow closed at 32,627 a week ago uh, on Friday. It had been at 32,778. So, like I said, not much difference. S&P at 3913. The Nasdaq at thirteen thousand two fifteen, even though it got beat up fairly badly a couple days ago, uh, it uh, was again unchanged relative to last week. The um, Russell two thousand at twenty two eighty seven. Gold settled at seventeen thirty four an ounce. Silver ended the week at twenty six dollars. Crude at sixty one forty two was down about four dollars a barrel. Ten-year Treasury jumped up uh, 10 basis points. It's at 1.72%, the highest in 14 months. And soft white wheat at 7.45 a bushel. Now, just to put all this market stuff uh, in, uh, how would I say, some sort of perspective, remember that a a year ago last Tuesday, the S&P had fallen 12%. That was the third worst day in history. And if uh, you had bought the market at the close that day, and I know everybody jumped right in to do that, you're now up 66%. Now, if you were, hmm, how would I say, stretching the truth just a bit and bought at the very bottom on the 23rd of March, you're up 78%. So, 90% of the stocks bottomed last year in March, and since then, they've done pretty dang good. Half the index, that's the S&P 500, is up more than 100% from its 52-week low. Now, a bit of an interesting note, at least I thought uh, this is from the Investment Company Institute. They say that money market funds in the U.S. and this is retail and institutional, taxable, tax-free, have gone up um, $615 billion over the last 12 months. That's through a week ago. Last a week ago, yesterday. That's an average increase of $12 billion a week. I'd say what that says is a high fear factor uh, in terms of the marketplace because you're certainly not earning anything in in those uh, particular situations. Now, yesterday, too, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about some Fed comments from the past week, but yesterday the Fed decided not to extend a rule uh, expiring at the end of this month that uh, relaxed what they call the supplementary leverage ratio for banks during the uh, virus stuff. Um, they allowed, the rule allowed banks to hold less capital against treasuries and other holdings uh, to calm the bond market and basically to encourage banks to lend. Well, they didn't do much of the latter, but it did help the bond market. And uh, it could have some adverse effects, according to some traders, uh, if in response the banks decide to sell some of their treasuries. And that was one of the reasons the market sold off uh, yesterday was in anticipation of again what might happen. Now, please understand what goes on in the marketplace to a great extent is exactly that. It's a lot of coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know what might happen, what could happen, and uh, they start getting over their skis sometimes. And some of their and I'm talking about the traders and the, the uh, quote-unquote uh, tea leaf readers you uh, hear on the uh, news. They get, uh, you know, they extrapolate one thing out into the distance as if nothing will ever change, and that certainly isn't the case in the marketplace. Now, the Fed this week, there's a great quote, said indicators of economic activity and employment have turned up recently. Well, there you go, and they said that in this week's policy statement, and it's kind of a big deal for the Fed to say that publicly that things are getting better. See, because you have to understand about these folks. You know, nothing person, well, bankers uh, usually aren't a lot of laughs. They're kind of pretty staid folks. And central bankers, oh, my goodness, they're trained from birth, I think, to make any statement, any statement in qualified and hesitant terms using words that are only found in financial academia. So um, we'll try to decode some of that. Now, in the most recent meeting, the Fed made no changes to monetary policy and just minimal changes to its statement, again, basically acknowledging that some indicators have turned up and others noting that inflation remains their target of uh, less than 2%. Now, they expect the benchmark interest rates to remain near zero for the next two years. They did upgrade their economic outlook to reflect expectations for a stronger recovery, And GDP this year is expected to grow 6.5%, according to the Fed, before cooling off uh, in subsequent years. Now, the action from the Fed was in changes to its projections. This was during its um, uh, releasing its notes uh, that they talked about on Wednesday. They made some changes to the economic forecast, as well as the number of policymakers who think the Fed's going to lift short-term rates either next year or the year after. And it sounds like a perfect scenario for investors and the the outlook, and you're seeing market response to this very optimistic view. This from Michael LaRone. He's chief investment strategist at State Street Global Advisors. He added monetary policy is going to remain largely accommodative almost regardless of what happens with interest rates, inflation, and asset prices. Well, that certainly seems to be the case so far. Now, according to the Fed's December forecast, they see the economy growing 4% this year, And a number of Wall Street firms are seeing rates of growth in excess of that. Goldman, for example, Goldman Sachs, thinks that the economy can grow by 8% this year. Now, uh, you know, that puts Mr. Powell in kind of a tough position. He wants to demonstrate that the economy is getting better while maintaining that commitment to low rates. And that this week's policy statement, uh, you know, they also updated their economic projections. He reiterated, this was uh, yesterday, Uh, Mr. Powell, that is, reiterated his commitment to an all-in approach to the recovery. He says the recovery is far from complete, so at the Fed, we will continue to provide the economy with the support that it needs for as long as it takes. He added, "I truly believe that we will emerge from this crisis stronger and better, as we have so often before." Yea, verily, you heard it here first. So. In any case, let's talk about some of the economic reports. Air travel last weekend, highest level in more than a year. Passenger air traffic up 78% since the end of January. Still down 40% year over year, but (laughs) the trend is our friend. And uh, speaking of that, the Empire State Index, which is a measure of uh, factory sentiment around the New York City general area, Rose in March from February and t- to the highest reading since late 2018. The major reason for the up- uptick was uh, prices manufactured reported paying for materials, those are somewhat inflationary, and receiving for finished products, which both rose to the highest level since 2011. Now, the Fed also uh, released its estimates of household net worth, so stand by, you're going to get real rich here in a minute. It said net worth has reached a new record high in nominal, real, and per capita terms. In other words, pretty much whichever way you spin the bottle, you're going up. The virus has been a disaster to be sure, but the U.S. economy is healthy and poised to continue to prosper, though at a much slower rate than what we've seen in the past. According to the Fed, the private sector of the U.S. economy, that's us, currently has a net worth, that's total assets minus total liabilities, of more than $130 trillion. That's up $12 trillion from a year ago. That's a growth rate of 10%. Well, financial assets have done the best, no surprise, but noteworthy is the relatively small increase in household liabilities since just before the recession, the big recession. Liabilities have gone from um, $14.5 trillion at the end of 2007 to only uh, uh, let me see if I got that right. Yep, to only 17 trillion uh, as of a few months ago. That's a growth rate of only 1.3 percent a year. So folks are keeping control of that. But yeah, and you say, well, debt, gee, it's out of control. Well, it's 14 and a half trillion in the U.S. as I just said. But 70 percent of that number is in the form of mortgage debt. That kind of makes sense when you think the homeownership rate in the U.S. is about two thirds of the population. And Wall Street Journal says the current housing boom is far more stable than the last one, has fewer systemic risks. One downside, there's more barriers to entry, and it's difficult for buyers who aren't already homeowners to make that first purchase. I wouldn't call that new news. Uh, And let's see, what else? Uh, And uh, Robert Schiller, Professor Robert Schiller, put together a database of home prices going back to 1890. Well, adjusting for inflation, the real growth in housing from 1890 through the tail end of 2019, the most recent period of good data was just growth of 0.5% a year. Now even in more modern times returns aren't that much better. since 1950, it's about one percent a year above inflation, above inflation operative term. And it's also around percent around one percent a year in terms of real return. in other words, after inflation. So, I just keep that in mind. That's why we suggest to folks you know, your house is where you live. You don't worry about uh, the appreciation factor. Real estate as an investment, whole nother deal. I think it's uh, pretty much smoke and not too much fire right now. Now, first of all, if you took all your money and buried it either in your backyard or in your checking account, it would lose 50% of its value in 23 years. This assuming a 3% inflation rate. Well, uh, two things about that 3% inflation rate uh, and the time period. The time period is well within the range of most folks' retirement period. And the 3% is the long-term average uh, consumer price index rate here in the U.S. So, again, uh, you have to factor in inflation. We believe inflation is still and always will be a monetary phenomenon. It's basically defined as too much money chasing too few goods and services. But that doesn't mean that every period of higher inflation is going to look exactly the same. In today's case, is no exception. One of the biggest problems, I believe, and it's just me, uh, is that uh, the majority of traders, investors, what have you, have no concept of what it's like to invest when interest rates are above nothing. Uh, if you're an investor who's primarily been doing this since 2008 uh, sorry you have no idea and you know just a fact I'm not (laughs) waving my finger in your face Uh, inflation too we just haven't had that to deal with and so uh, you know you little bits of increases I think are having way bigger an effect because of the perceptual challenges that a lot of folks have now the M2 measure of money supply is up about 25% from a year ago. That's the fastest year-over-year growth since World War II. Now, what's M2? He said, okay, that's money in savings accounts and money market accounts. And while measures of the overall economy as you know, GDP and industrial production are still down a bit relative to a year ago, disposable incomes are substantially higher. That's boosted by all these massive payments from the Fed with more quote-unquote stimulus on the way. Now, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, inflation at our level, is currently up only 1.7% from a year ago. I mentioned in the last segment that 3% is the average in the U.S. Well, that goes back some time, but it also includes periods where inflation was, how might I say, significantly higher than where it is right now in the 70s and 80s. But uh, the year ago, comparison is set to move up to 2.5% or higher as we drop off the big declines in prices that we had seen during February through April of last year. The biggest question, how quickly the Fed turns its attention to inflation as it builds and how far they'll go to fight it. Now, in the 70s, it was double-digit inflation, and I'm here to tell you it was no fun. And in the 80s, it was 5 to 6% inflation, and that was doable. We had some pretty good markets in that period of time. Either way, the Fed has made it clear that it plans to remain easy through 2022. Through 2022. So that's, what, a year and a half yet, uh, or a year and three quarters. As a result, we're remaining bullish on the economy and stocks, but cautious, as we've been saying for some time, on bonds because inflation is picking up, even though it's relatively still low, it still eats away at your value. Now we all need to wait until 2023 to see what we uh, actually wind up with, I guess. Now remember, inflation compounds against you as well. As well, it's like an expense ratio that changes over time. You know, beyond your goals and dreams, the whole reason for taking risk, relative risk in your portfolio, in the first place, is to overcome inflation. You have to if you want to beat. A rising standard of living. Again, as I said at the open, here 50 percent of value will go away over 23 years if inflation's 3 percent. And besides, what what alternative do you have if cash is basically zero? Cash, money market, savings accounts, CDs, for even, you know, the expected return on cash is vac- virtually guaranteed to be negative, especially if you factor in taxes and inflation. And as inflation rises, the purchasing power of that cash declines. And don't forget, most stocks give you exposure to a rising price level just as real estate and energy does. Now, a gentleman named Morgan Houseell, who is a pretty smart guy, he's, he, he worked out something that I think uh, helps really get us a handle on this. He mentioned money supply has increased from $4 trillion a year ago to $18 trillion today. Well, how did that happen? Well, the biggest majority is simply an accounting change. What? Well, see, you measure money in... in, I don't want to make this uh, some economic lesson because it's not worth it, but I just need you to get some idea as to where this money came from. The supply of money is measured in a few different ways. M1 is the money that's readily available. Cash, coins, checking accounts. And as I said, M2 is a little broader. Money and savings accounts and money markets. The difference between a checking and savings account is basically how often you're allowed to access your money. If you put money in a checking account, regulators make banks set aside a cushion as reserves in case they get into trouble. But if you put money into a savings account, those same lovely regulators tell banks they don't have to reserve anything. What's this. The catch is, is because it's only considered as a savings account if you the consumer is allowed to make no more than six withdrawals per month they used to call those now accounts you know negotiated order of withdrawal but anyway it's worked that way for years but then the virus showed up and the regulators realized that having trillions of dollars in those savings accounts with just limited withdrawals yeah, that wasn't exactly fair to the folks who lost their jobs well anybody else for that matter but last april The Fed changed the rules, and they eliminated the six withdrawal limit on savings accounts, ordering uh, depository institutions to, quote, allow their customers to make unlimited number of convenient transfers and withdrawals from their savings accounts, unquote. Now, it was an obvious, nearly risk-free way to help people, just let them have easier access to their own money. But it changed the relationship between M1 and M2. So savings accounts are measured in M2 and not in M1 but once they took that rule away as if by magic every savings account became in the eyes of the regulators lovely folks a checking account so m1 took off not because the fed printed money not because of inflation running away but because trillions of dollars in savings accounts were automatically magically as i said reclassified as checking accounts and the fed they say how much are we talking about well as the Fed explained in a footnote, beginning with the May 2020, M1 will increase by the size of the uh, industry total of savings deposits, which amounted to approximately 11.2 trillion. In other words, of the 14. Point, excuse me, 14 trillion increase in M1, 80 percent of it, about 11 trillion dollars, came from an accounting change that shifted money from savings to Uh, checking accounts. So that takes a lot of that so-called stress out of the inflation when you consider where those uh, dollars came from, really. Well, we're going to have to take a break here at the bottom. Uh, We'll be back with a few more words about inflation uh, and some real estate, as well as the outlook for the markets and sectors you might want to consider. Well, market outlook and some sectors you might want to be looking at uh, as uh, the markets continue to rotate. Now you know that was all well and good. Uh, this it, right before the break, we were talking about inflation and uh, this magic uh, showing up of 14 trillion dollars. Uh, but uh, you know that's all fine, Mike. But what about all these prices I see going up for everything? Well, you know some of this is because of well, the lockdown we have to, had to endure, the, and the supply chain mess-ups. You've got a lot of uh, pent-up demand uh, as well as uh, pent-up supply. So uh, you've got uh, the the market has to find its balance again, and that's going to take, excuse me, the economy has to find its balance again, and that's going to take a while. But like, for example, the current run-up in the metals prices, well, it kind of reflects the same por- forces that have driven the past year's recovery in stocks and bonds, Um Tom Mulqueen, he's head of research at amalgamated metal trading. He's talking about obviously precious metals, but fiscal and monetary stimulus has underpinned the rally since last March. He said there's just more money in financial market. Yeah, that's true. Now here's though. Lumber, one of the biggest costs in home building, after land and labor, never been more expensive. Crude oil, a starting point for paint, drain pain, paint. That's paint, Mike. Right? Drain pipe, roof shingles, flooring, who knows what else, shot up more than uh, 70% since October. Copper, which carries water and electricity throughout houses and is parts of lots of machines and what have you, costs about a third more than it did in the fall. And you're looking at, you know, granite, insulation, concrete blocks, brick They're all at record highs this year. And uh, builders and manufacturers, of course, have to raise prices to pass along these higher costs. I mean, that's how it works. So that's inflationary. Back in December, only one policymaker thought the Fed would raise rates in 2022. Now four of them, four of the 18 on the Fed, think they'll raise rates at least once next year. So, yeah, that means a majority of Monetary officials still think the first rate hike will be 2024 or beyond. Uh, well, there's still plenty of time for the Fed to change its mind and bring forward a first rate hike into 2023. Key inflation will be the inflation rate. And if inflation continues to rise in 22, a rate hike in 23 would be possible, maybe even a rate hike in the second half of uh, 2022. Inflation may yet become a problem, but it's far from obvious right now. Do yourself a favor. Keep an eye on the monthly numbers. Look for the trends. If annual inflation rises meaningfully higher than its long-term average for several months, whenever that is, it may be a sign that inflationary pressures are building. Until then, I think the fear of inflation is a greater threat than inflation itself. Uh, Pardon me, FDR, for kind of playing off your term there, sir. Uh, let's see a a preview of coming attractions here. You know, um, the yield on uh, the return on 10 year treasuries has averaged four and a half percent over the last 150 years. So even after this recent move higher and it closed yesterday at 1.7%, the 10 year yield is still very low. You know, people are beating it up like... Oh, my goodness, look what's happening in the tenure. Well, see, here's the perception challenge again. (laughs) If it's been less than 1% forever, then, relatively speaking, then when it does start to turn up, all these folks start jumping up and down, having hissy fits about, oh, my goodness, the rates are going up. Whatever will I do? Uh, (laughs) Well, you're going to have to react accordingly. That's what you're going to do. Now, J.P. Morgan Asset Management says their long-term analysis suggests that the correlation between the weekly changes in long-term interest rates and large-cap stock performance begins to turn negative when the 10-year yields rise above 5%. Hmm. See, that's because they see that bonds then offer a What I say, a a more predictable rate of return for a portion of assets without the inherent fluctuation of stock prices. That's 5%. That's from 1.7% in bond terms, that's light years away. Now, referring to the recent rise in the yield in the tenure, Warren Buffett, he of Omaha fame, said, and I'm quoting, Uh, This is, I believe, in his most recent uh, letter to shareholders. He said, bonds are not the place to be these days. Fixed income investors worldwide, whether they're pension funds, insurance companies, or retirees, face a bleak future. And that's a quote. From its all-time closing low, which was 0.50%, that was in March of last year, the yield on the 10-year has risen almost three and a half times to close at 1.72 on Friday. So the rate of acceleration has been fast. The actual difference in three and a half times by any other uh, measure, that's a lot. So, yeah, I mean, you can't not pay attention to it, but I don't think you should put as much weight into it as a lot of these talking heads seem to think we need to. And if rates continue to rise, the pain for these long-term bondholders can be quite significant. The duration for long-term bonds, if you look at uh, the bond fund, I think it's Vanguard's, it's, the symbol is V-B-L-A-X. You, you, the, that's a long-term bond fund. And the measure, the duration of that fund, which is a measure of how sensitive prices are to interest rates, is 15, Okay. Now, so a a, a simple way to think about this is that a a duration of 15 means that a 1% rise in interest rates would lead to a 15% decline in principal value on the bond fund. Interest, you know, that continues. But at 2% or whatever it is, income and a 15% drop in principal, that's not the kind of a trade you want to be on alongside of. You know, Think of long-term bond funds or a bond mutual fund having a maturity of 15 years or more, that's long-term. And those are the ones that are especially significant to interest rates, because the further out in time they are, the more they will be subject to fluctuation. It's uh, As I've suggested previously, it's like being the person at the end of the crack the whip line. They're the one who's going to feel it a lot more than the person who's in close to the end with shorter term or the uh, center with shorter term maturities. Now, I don't know anybody today. Now, this is because I do this for a living. uh, I don't know anybody who who holds an entire portfolio of long term bonds. I would be amiss to suggest that there are a whole lot of folks who do have a vast majority of their assets in such things for any number of reasons. Now, most folks that we deal with own some inter- intermediate-term bonds of varying credit quality, and the reason they do so is to help off- offset the risk that comes with owning stocks. Okay, I mean, that's asset allocation, that's usual and normal, that's how you do it. That's, that's uh, the school solution, as we say. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, if interest rates rise because the economy is improving, you'd think that the gains from the stocks would help offset any losses in bonds. Well, that's the way it looks on paper anyway, doesn't it? So, you know, though volatility has hit the market over the past few weeks, and I use that term advisedly, but it really hasn't been accompanied by any meaningful deterioration in breadth. The number of stocks uh, is actually participating. That's what breadth refers to. Rather, we continue to see more and more industry groups making new highs, uh, which signifies an expansion in participation beneath the surface. There's a lot more companies that are getting into the market trend because things uh, are changing in terms of what people are looking for. These kinds of extreme breadth readings, they're pretty common during the early stages of bull markets and have historically been supportive of higher prices. Now, if you look at there's a there's a ETF, an exchange traded fund, um, which tracks the financial sector. Its symbol is XLF, and it's breaking out of a 14 year base to new new all time highs. That's a major development. See, because financials are arguably perhaps one of the most important groups of stocks in the world, and they've been kind of a missing piece to the puzzle during recent bull runs because you can't have, well, it seems, my experience, you can't have bull markets without the financials participating. Now, the sector was down a lot yesterday due to that Fed rule change, but again, that's more of a knee-jerk because toward the end of the day, the stocks had recovered from their earlier lows. Now, uh, some of the long-term laggards among European stocks – (laughs) <laughs> where they're having some ongoing trouble they can't seem to get out of their own way over there um, but the european stocks a lot of them are heavily weighted toward financials and industrials which are value sectors which benefit from this kind of rotation so looking overseas for some position perhaps could go do well too and finally investors uh, you're looking at um, Solid price action from what they call the frontier markets. Now, you've heard of emerging markets? Well, frontier markets are past those folks. That includes countries like Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria. Not reasons that you flock to when you're looking for safety. In fact, quite the opposite. But it's perhaps a good place to be because they definitely can benefit in a resurging economy, resurging global economy. I've, I have said a few times through this um uh, report today as well as times in the past <clears throat> excuse me that perceptions are reality when it comes to the market sophocles you remember him he's a guy in greece he said what people believe prevails over the truth once again uh, perceptions are reality and i think that has a lot to do with how the concerns quote unquote that people have about the market so let's Kind of look at it over from the reality side. Now we've long held the view, and this is backed by lots of data, that no level of price to earnings ratio is basically good or bad for stocks. And now rising PEs, that's short for price earnings ratio, can indicate euphoria. That's just about the rate of change, not the level. And even then, it's important to use the most relevant PE and look at both halves of the ratio. Today, that shows the uh, stocks aren't present are not presently overvalued that it's always important to keep rational expectations. Now, much of the media coverage we get 24-7 focuses on the S&P's trailing P-E ratio. What that is is the current price divided by the last 12 months' earnings of the S&P. So the figure jumped from 1706 when stocks bottomed last March to 2776 on January 8th before it started inching down a bit. Now, Through yesterday's close, the S&P had returned 80% since the low last year. Those factoids are driving a whole majority of stocks uh, in the overvalued chatter, but they're incomplete because they ignore the earnings. Now, what happened with P ratios over the past year, stocks went up. I think we've seen that. But S&P earnings per share fell 11% last year overall there were drops in all four quarters, huge falls in quarter two and three. So that helped pump up the trailing PEs. The problem with using this as a forward-looking indicator is that stocks don't look backwards. They look ahead. Three to six months min. And they aren't pricing in earnings over the past 12 months. They already got past all that. They got past last year's earnings drops when they had the steepest, fastest bear market on the planet in February and March last year. At this point, for stocks, depressed earnings shouldn't factor into a forecast, at least in our view. When you purchase a stock, you're buying a share of that company's future profits. So what matters from here, from whenever you make the investment, is whether stocks are overvalued relative to their future earnings. And you won't be surprised to learn that we have a P.E. for that too. The forward P.E. ratio divides stock prices by expected earnings over the next year. That's not perfect, it's an estimate. Okay, so actual earnings rarely hit estimates. Sometimes they miss, but more often than not, they actually beat. So the forward P.E. is still useful as a measure of sentiment since it shows how investors feel about the future, specifically about a company, and a rising forward P.E. generally signals more optimism. Over the past nine and a half months, the S&P's forward P.E. is basically flat, minimal volatility, now, it may be elevated relative to history, but three-plus quarters of flatness isn't exactly a spike, is it? And <laughs> this flat stretch happened as the index returned 32.1%. I'll take flat. So even as earnings were falling last year, analysts looked to the future. Good call. Lockdowns, endings, and normalish economic activity returning, and so penciled in a strong recovery. The stock prices went up alongside expectations because investors were kind of looking toward the same future. Stocks are probably looking further to 2022 and beyond, and we think that will likely be a key factor to watch as analysts continue to dissect earnings results this year. Not that we're preaching caution in the here and now. Optimistic sentiment is not euphoria, and euphoria on its own isn't bearish. Rather, the dangerous cocktail, the thing you don't want to be doing, is the combo of euphoria and deteriorating fundamentals. We're definitely not there now, so we think staring bullish is your most beneficial move today. Uh, The recent divergence between growth and value issues is probably more likely driven by their valuations than these higher interest rates, and I use higher in quotes. There's been no correlation in the past between the level of interest rates and a valuation gap between growth and value stocks. Investors who have binged on U.S. growth stocks and those long-term bonds recently, well, you can get a better balance in your portfolios by shortening up those maturities into something 10 years or less and expanding their stock portfolio to some high-quality dividend payers. You know, uh, that's within the U.S. and abroad, I would add. And following this long period of massive outperformance, the big tech stocks, they <laughs> these guys haven't been connected with their fundamentals for years. you kidding? Tesla? No way. Netflix? I'm sorry, no. These things have nothing to do with fundamentals. They're the hype, cool concept companies with investor bases that don't worry about fundamentals. But with the yield on the 10-year uh, up, 1% fundamentals are now suddenly going to matter? Mm, I don't think so. You know, We're clearly witnessing some profit-taking and a broadening of the rally, and these reactions, I think, may be long overdue. What's happening now is everybody seems to be reacting to events that are expected to happen, but haven't happened yet. For example, the stimulus checks are expected to help, but they're in the mail, aren't they? The bond market is reacting to inflation, which simply hasn't appeared yet. The stock market is rallying on earnings, which aren't all here, but are expected to arrive shortly. There's a reason the economic landscape should brighten in the months ahead, as this virus fades into history, deservedly so. However, it's unfortunate the current administration seems hell-bent on doing the opposite of what's needed despite all the damage that may be done by the stimulus bill, a rebounding U.S. and global economy in higher prices should provide significant support to the stock market. And a couple uh, closing thoughts. Um, I used to talk about what they call the 10-2 spread. That's the difference between the returns on the 2- and 10-year treasuries. And whenever that difference goes negative, it's often an indicator of a recession. And it's got a pretty good track record, too, because that difference, the spread, turned negative in August of 2019 and that recession was six months away. Now the spread today very wide. It's due to short-term rates staying where they are now and we're seeing longer term rates going up. So just this year the spread has nearly doubled from 80 basis points to 159 basis points right now. So the same formula for the market remains in place to determine where you should be investing. Stocks over bounds, Cyclical stocks over defensive issues, value over growth, small caps over large. Yes, values are relatively high, but the potential for a 10% nominal GDP growth and rapidly rising earnings estimate may, in fact, justify these uh, rising prices. It seems like, to me, that this recent market action feels like the market's trying to establish a new trading range. So, as a result, it needs to test it up and down and sideways and around and all those other directions uh, to see which way we're going. And treasuries need to find their range, too. Maybe 1.75 will be the high end. Maybe not. The market's pricing mechanism is always working, always adjusting for new data, news, and expectations. We know it's uncomfortable at times, but it is normal. Anybody who believes it still makes sense to stay in cash or go to cash in the face of a $2.8 trillion in new stimulus, a dovish treasury secretary, and to say the least, an ultra-accommodative Fed, understands neither math nor physics. So watch the bank stocks. They get it. An increase in longer-term rates is healthy for their businesses and is reflective of economic firming over the near term. Remember... One of the main reasons rates go up is because the economy is incre- increasing and there's an increased demand for money. Understand, too, that the more positive sentiment gets and the rosier people get about the far future, the likelihood they may miss something negative uh, on as around them. So keep a weather eye out. Watch the trend, even as you benefit from the bull market today. So in closing, yes, sir. The, the party starts tonight 6 20 or so the zags start the next six games uh, and hopefully it'll all come out like it's supposed to so have a great week uh, we'll be back next saturday with more market news thank you very much for listening i really do appreciate it this is mike mail i'm with the spokane office of the opus 111 group and you've been listening to money management Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.